Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Episode 34 of History on Fire is brought to you by Blue Apron. Once upon a time, I was the chef around the house. Back then, History on Fire producer and editor Savannah M. possessed many fine talents, but cooking wasn't one of them. And then the Blue Apron delivery began arriving, and she decided to take a stab at it. And it took her no time to learn to be incredibly skilled cooking Blue Apron meals. So she's now the official household chef. My skills have been very sadly overshadowed by her newly found mastery. We just had, right before right now when we sat down recording, we just had one of her amazing Blue Apron creations just a few minutes ago. Now, regardless of her cooking skills, which may not benefit you much, the good news for you is that there's a special offer for History on Fire listeners. So if you check out this week's menu and you can get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This episode is also brought to you by Cannaway. If you guys have never tried CBD to... CBD is one of those wonder chemicals that... It's just amazing. It helps to fight pain, inflammation, anxiety, and I can go down the list and spend a whole episode just listing all the good stuff that CBD does to your body. So if you want to check it out, do some research, Google CBD, and find out what it's all about. I'm partnering up with a CBD company. So if you guys want to try it out, you can go to cannaway.com forward slash 249-6006. That's K-A-N-N-A-W-A-Y dot com forward slash 2496006. If you end up trying it, I would love to hear your feedback. Also, big thank you to my usual sponsors, Onnit.com. If you want to check out the many amazing products that Onnit produces, go to onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount. These days, Savannah is rehabbing, doing uh, kettlebells, and she's using the Omnit kettlebells, and they are working really well. So, But beside the workout gear, they have so many other great products, so check them out. Also, a quick shout-out to Datsusara. Um, their website is the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. I'm going to do a special Datsusara spot, but I don't want to spend too much time here in the intro, so I'll do it at the end. If you're in the mood to hear some creative advertising, check this one out. I had actually a blast writing it, so 
I'll do this at the end. If you guys want to stick around and check it out, that would be sweet. And also a couple of quick shout outs. One to dynastyforge.com for sharing with me their amazing swords. I'm quite passionate when it comes to swords. I, uh, last time when I met Dan Carlin from Hardcore History, my gift to him was one of these glorious swords. So check out dynastyforge.com for their selection. And last but most definitely not least, uh, Never Tap Gear. These folks make, right now, they primarily are making um, knee shields so that you can work out without blowing out your knees. They're, you know, knee braces, knee shields, that kind of thing. They are, they're really good. I use them all the time when I train jiu-jitsu. So check out nevertapgear.com in case you need any of their stuff. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. If you absolutely and totally hate ads and your finger is too lazy to hit the fast-forward button, go on Patreon. Uh, My Patreon page is listed in the episode notes and uh, you can uh, get access, either early access to the episodes or access to episodes that don't include advertisements, so that's an option as well. At the end of the episode, I'll have a few announcements for you. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. While I'm warming up the fire to set history on fire, let me tell you something about this episode and this series. This is this is gonna be part of uh, this is gonna be a series, not a long one, two episodes. So this is part one, and at the at the very end of May, we should have part two ready, or at the latest, the first few days of June. So it's gonna. It's going to happen quickly. It's an insanely wild story. It's one of the things that, when I was researching it, my head was exploding because there were so many rabbit holes to go down to. But it's a great story too, so I I really hope you enjoy it. And uh, just to let you know, yes, this is part one. Part two is coming up just in a few weeks. There's a church in Rome called Basilica di Santa Pollinare. It's very close to Rome's main square, Piazza Navona. The basilica was originally built over a thousand years ago, and then it was rebuilt in the 1700s. As churches go, this is a particularly important one, one that has been visited by many popes, cardinals and Christian martyrs are buried there. This is a place for saints, very close to the Vatican, but if you visited the church between 1990 and 2012, you would have found someone else buried there. Someone who wasn't exactly a saint or a pope or some other high-ranking member of the clergy. Rather, the man was one of the most important gangsters in 20th century Italian history. Carved into the white marble of his sarcophagus was his name, Enrico de Pedis and his nickname, Renato, or sometimes called Renatino. He was one of the bosses of the Banda della Magliana, a gang that ruled over Rome from the late 1970s to, well, some people will say early 1990s, others will tell you that La Banda della Magliana still rules Rome today. In any case, the fact that a gangster who had killed plenty of people 
and had many more people killed on his behalf, received the blessings of the highest authorities in the Catholic Church to be buried at Santa Polinare, should clue you in to the fact that the Magliana Gang was not just one of many criminal organizations who operated in Italy. Among their business partners, they counted Italy's most important politicians, bankers, secret services, and possibly the Vatican itself. The gang left an indelible mark on Italian history. The story of their rise to power and of the heyday of their rule truly is a stranger than fiction. It's the kind of story that makes you think that The Godfather 3 perhaps was a documentary after all. There are lots of books and documentaries about this, but almost every single one of them is in Italian. So, it looks like I'm your man if you want to hear this story in English or whatever approximation of English I actually speak. Researching this story has been both a pleasure and a nightmare. A pleasure because it's one of those insane tales that had me at the edge of my seat the entire time I was reading about it. A pleasure also because I had a chance to research it with my father's help, which was a treat in itself. A nightmare because this is the mother of all conspiracy theories. Usually I'm not fond of conspiracy theories. Most of the time the need to believe in some uber-powerful villain who is pulling the strings seems to originate from the fear that maybe no one is really pulling the strings, that maybe we live in a chaotic world where no one is running the show according to an efficient and rational plan. And that sometimes that thought may actually be scarier than the idea that there is some evil organization out there ruling behind the scenes. But my opposition to conspiracy theories is severely tested by the material we'll be playing with today, since the evidence for some incredibly shady stuff happening behind the scenes in modern Italian history is quite telling. Okay, so what's the problem then? Why do I say it was a nightmare to research? Well, because there are 10,000 side stories involving the Magliana gang, Each one of these is tied to some major mystery in modern Italian politics, each rabbit hole leading to a topic that would make a podcast series in itself. So just when you think you're getting to the bottom of it all, suddenly you're redirected to another ultra-complicated event. This has made it quite difficult to stay on track. The story of the Banda della Magliana hit a new... And by the way, you'll hear me say Banda della Magliana or Magliana Gang kind of interchangeably because Banda della Magliana is the Italian for Magliana Gang, so I'll kind of go back and forth. So the story of the Banda della Magliana hit a new high in popularity over the last decade or so. Um, The reason being is that they've been the subject of movies and of possibly the best TV series ever produced in Italy called uh, Romanzo Criminale. Incidentally, if you're interested in it, I'm sure you can find it somewhere online. It's in Italian, well, kind of Italian, it's primarily in Roman dialect, but with subtitles. Quite a few people have been horrified that the media would dedicate so much attention 
to a group of extremely violent gangsters. But many others fell under the spell of the gang, to the point that members of the gang have been celebrated by some as some sorts of popular heroes. So before we get going with the chronological narration of the creation of the gang, we start addressing how and why they became a central feature of late 20th century Italian history. It's worth spending a few minutes to discuss the reasons for the popular fascination that many people seem to have for other individuals living outside the law. Writer H.L. Mencken, and I'm completely taking a guess on the pronunciation because I never heard it. I've always seen it written, I never heard it pronounced it, so, you know, I'm completely guessing here. So, assuming that his name was Mencken, he once famously wrote, Every normal man must be tempted at times to spit on his hands, hoist the black flag, and begin slitting throats. Now, what does that even mean? What does it mean that very quickly after cinema was created and the technology for making movies was invented, the most popular films people flocked to watch were gangster movies. Why is it that even in more recent times, movies like The Godfather or TV series like The Sopranos capture an incredibly high level of attention? Many places around the world, law-abiding citizens who go to work every day and pay their bills on time seem to nourish an intense fascination for those who live outside the law. And I'm not just talking about the romance of or the Robin Hood type. That one is easy to understand. You know, Robin Hood is a good guy who turns outlaw because his enemies are thugs who hide behind the law to rob and steal. He's an ethical outlaw who breaks the rules for all the right reasons. So his appeal is obvious. His being a recognizably good human being doesn't stand in the way of him having the guts to do the right thing, regardless of what self-serving laws written by the powerful may have to say. So plenty of cultures around the globe have produced their own beloved Robin Hood kind of figures. One of my personal favorites is this guy named Toroi Bandi, the 19th century Mongolian version of Robin Hood. There's a great Mongolian song dedicated to him, which contains lyrics that can be translated as hierarchy, strict rules, I won't obey this tradition. Why kneel down like a slave? I'd rather be an outlaw. No one owns this beautiful planet. I can go wherever I want, thanks to my horse. Now, just reading that makes me happy. However, that's not what we're talking about here. People seem to be equally intrigued with characters who lack the romantic, ethical outlaw vibe, but are flat-out criminals. Antonio Mancini, one of the key members of the Magliana gang, would openly admit, I'm not a good guy. I'm a son of a bitch. So liking Robin Hood is easy. You know, he combines the hero archetype with the bad boy archetype. He's uh, sweet and ethical and badass at the same time. So the appeal is obvious. But why the fascination and borderline hero worship for brutal criminals? I'm in a musical mood, so I'll 
enlist the lyrics of another song to make my point. This is a song by the, the, the group The Clash about the joys of Robin Banks. So here the song goes. It says, Some is rich and some is poor. That's the way the world is. But I don't believe in lying back, saying how bad your luck is. So we came to jazz it up. We never loved the shovel. Break your back to earn your pay and don't forget to gravel. A lifetime serving one machine is ten times worse than prison. Or, sticking to the appeal for disguise in popular culture, let's try the lines at the end of Martin Scorsese's movie Goodfellas. And then I swear I'll cut with the quotes, but this is a good one. This is the ending of Goodfellas. It goes, We are treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all just for the asking. Anything I wanted was a phone call away. Free cars, the keys to a dozen hideout flats all over the city. When I was broke, I would go out and rob some more. We ran everything. We paid off cops, we paid off lawyers, we paid off judges. Everybody had their hands out. Everybody was for the taking. And now it's all over. And that's the hardest part. Today... Everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. Now, both of these quotes by the Clash and from the film Goodfellas touch on something very real. The same sentiments are echoed in the words of real-life mobster Antonio Mancini. Magliana gang member I mentioned a minute ago. Unlike other members of the gang, there were no criminals in his family. His folks were extremely poor people who had been seduced by communism promises for a more fair society. But what Mancini saw growing up was not a fair society. He just saw his parents and other people he knew cut out into politicians to be able to have a bone thrown their way. He saw nothing changing. He saw daily life as an endless series of doors shut in his face at every turn. And so he decided to take things in his own hands. He said, I quote, I felt an instant, something inside that I said, I have to steal. So he started stealing scooters, cars, graduated to stores, trains, and eventually started dealing cocaine. Okay, Bolelli, enough with the quotes. What does this mean? Don't take it for gospel, but here is my theory for the incredible popular appeal of gangsters, pirates, and those who live outside the law. The experience of the overwhelming majority of human beings is characterized by mass doses of frustration. The clash between our wishes and reality is often a brutal one. Save for very rare cases, if you want to succeed at anything, you have to learn early on to accept going through 10,000 failures before, maybe, scoring one success. So we all have to jump through hoops. We all have to deal with more bureaucracy than we would like. Part of living in a modern society means having to abide by rules and customs you don't necessarily agree with. 
that's just the nature of living in a state society. So let's not even get started about the experience of having bosses yelling at you and holding in their hands the power to make your life miserable. Add to this the fact that most people are changed to, to jobs they don't care for. Money to pay the bills is the only motivation to make them wake up early and rush out of the house to a job that's slowly killing their souls. I, it's weird. It's, I always found it funny how so many people look down on prostitution because, quote-unquote, they only do it for the money. And yet few of the same people would be slaving at their jobs if it weren't for money. So in light of all of this, it's not surprising that that black flag begins to look more and more attractive by the minute. Even the hearts of people would never break a law in their lives beat extra fast when they consider what it would feel like to raise a middle finger to all those forces keeping you down, grab a gun, and make your own fortune without having to ask anyone's permission. Is it really that strange that people whose work lives are made of equal parts alienation and groveling at the feet of some office petty tyrant, is it that strange that these people would feel the appeal of taking their destiny in their hand in spite of whatever laws and customs may dictate? The gangster archetype offers one promise. What it offers is simple. Is the gangster archetype promises that maybe you don't have to be, to put it in the way good fellas put it, an average nobody. Maybe you don't have to wait in line with everyone else. Gangsters offer a dream of freedom and empowerment to those who are weighed down by their chains. But okay, enough with my musings about the appeal of the outlaw life. Let's get into some history. The specific tale we'll play with today is steeped in that period of Italian history that's often referred as Anni di Piombo, or literally translated, Years of Lead, a reference to the high number of bullets fired during the years between the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1980s. It's estimated that somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 political murders were committed in Italy over the period between 1969 and 1982. The political violence was everywhere, with the extreme left and the extreme right gunning each other down, and everyone else caught in the crossfire, at least participating in some slightly less bloody version of the same conflict. As a kid, I remember asking my parents why... They owned motorcycle helmets, even though neither one of them drove a motorcycle. And the answer I was given was, it's because of politics. Which, you know, to a little kid is like, huh, what, what did you mean? That was the reality of living in Italy in that period. But of course, political violence was not the only kind wrecking Italy in those years. Also common was the kind of violence that had less to do with politics and more with profit. The Banda della Magliana would be active on both fronts. Primarily will be concerned with violence for profit, but at least some members will also dabble in political violence. So let's jump into the origins of this gang. Now you're about to be flooded with trisillion Italian names, 
So I'm going to do my best to only mention the most relevant figures. And I'll try to repeat who they are each time I bring them up, so it may make it a little easier to follow. So let's start with that Antonio Mancini I mentioned a bit ago. In the 1970s, Mancini was part of a small gang specialized in robbing trains. One day, his luck ran out, as it's often the case in this type of stories, and he was arrested for one of those robberies. As a result of this, he was sent to criminal finishing school. I mean, I meant to say, he was sent to prison. There he met Nicolino Salis. Salis was known as Il Sardo, referring to his origin from the island of Sardinia. Salis was a small guy, covered in tattoos with a long rap sheet. He had contacts with Raffaele Cutolo from the Nuova Camorra Organizzata, whom he met in prison. Nuova Camorra Organizzata was one of the top criminal organizations in southern Italy. So while in jail, Salis and Mancini became friends and began tossing ideas around. Salis told Mancini he wanted to do in Rome what Cutolo was doing in Naples, which was to organize some kind of a super gang that would eliminate competition and establish a monopoly over the city basically take over Rome. At the time, this seemed like a convict's pipe dream, since the crime scene in Rome had traditionally been made up of very small groups, jealous of their independence and hostile to the idea of joining forces. These gangs were known as batterie. They were usually made up of three or four people, each one tied to a particular area of town, controlling illegal business only within their own neighborhood. So there was no sizable criminal organization existing in Rome. Mancini and Salis were determined to change the existing criminal context. I mean, even in grade school they encourage ambition. So if you are a criminal, why not dream of big criminal dreams? They recruited a certain Eduardo Toscano to their group, a guy whose name we'll hear again at some point in the podcast. For this plan to work, though, all of them would need to be out of jail. Mancini was the first one to get out, and he sent to Salis his weekly shipment of cocaine in prison thanks to some guards. Which, you know, it's a classic thing. There are often more drugs in prisons than there are outside. Until Salis, too, got out in 1978. But as it turns out, Salis and Mancini were not the only ones dreaming big. You know, he, in the 19th century, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace both came up with the theory of evolution at about the same time. Almost 2,500 years ago, the Taoist Lao Tzu, or whoever was the author of the Tao Te Ching, and the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, they wrote down nearly identical concepts at the same time, despite not knowing about one another. And in Rome in the late 1970s, someone else had noticed that the lack of an uber-powerful gang and the fragmentation of the criminal underworld offer serious opportunities, ripe for the taking. Enters in our story the man who is going to emerge as the first main leader of the Magliana gang, Franco Giuseppucci, a.k.a. Air Negro, or the Black One, due to his somewhat darker complexion. 
Joseph Pucci's father had been a baker, so a family unconnected with crime then? Well, not exactly, since Joseph Pucci's dad had a side job as a robber, and according to some sources ended up getting killed in a shootout with the police. This is disputed, however, I've seen some sources report otherwise. His son Franco wasn't feeling so hot about working in the bakery, so he started his career path as a bouncer at the racetracks and gambling houses. You know, the typical thing you hear about jobs is that they say a good job should allow you to network by meeting relevant people in your chosen industry, and that's exactly what happened as Giuseppucci began meeting people from the Roman criminal underworld. Eventually he graduated to robberies. Also, due to his many contacts, several gangs began hiring him to stash their weapons in his camper van. The game worked for a while, until a fateful day when his weapon ring was busted by the police. Giuseppucci could have ended up in jail for a long time, but since his camper van had a broken window... Giuseppucci's lawyer was able to argue that it couldn't be proven beyond reasonable doubt that he was the one who placed the weapons in there. Theoretically, someone else could have done it. So, thanks to this lame excuse, he got away. Let's add to our tale another couple of key characters in the history of the gang. It's now the turn of Enrico de Pedis, also known as Renatino. The guy buried in Santa Polinare, the one that we just opened uh, this episode with. He started his career as very small potatoes. He just started as a pickpocket and worked his way up to robberies. His vocational calling put him on a collision course with the police, so he ended up in jail a couple of times in the 1970s. While he was in jail... De Pedis said one of his guys give a bunch of weapons to Giuseppucci, who apparently had not been scared enough by his brush with the law to quit the weapon stashing business. Things, however, got complicated when Giuseppucci's Volkswagen, in which he had hidden the weapons, was stolen. For someone with the kind of criminal connections that Giuseppucci had, it really didn't take him long to find out who stole them. And as it turns out, not knowing that the weapons were inside the Volkswagen and also ignorant of who he was stealing from, the thief had already sold the car to a man tied to a batteria headed by Maurizio Abbatino. And here enters the third king of what will soon become the Banda della Magliana. Abbatino was the head of his own small gang specialized in robberies and like most of these guys had done his time in jail. So Giuseppucci reached out to Abbatino for a meeting. So here you have just two small-scale criminal bosses meeting about a potential argument over stolen weapons belonging to a third small-scale criminal boss. This is a very unlikely premise for the creation of the biggest gang in Rome in the 20th century. It's more likely that they end up shooting each other in some petty dispute among small fish. Things definitely had the potential to turn ugly in this meeting, and seemingly no potential to lead to anything extraordinary. But Appatino and Giuseppucci somehow ended up hitting it off famously, 
and so they decided to join forces. The Pedis heard the news from jail and also chose to join the gang. He would be able to physically join them once he would get out of prison in April of 1980. As Abbatino would later say, this new batteria was thus formed when Giuseppucci's group and our own decided to join forces. This was when we agreed on the obligation of solidarity and exclusive cooperation. So from this unlikely meeting we see the formation of an alliance between three separate small gangs into one. What Giuseppucci, Abbatino and De Pedis did here was exactly what Salis and Mancini had discussed in jail. Seeing the lack of any organization large enough to rule over Rome, they decided to seize the opportunity by joint forces, and incidentally both Salis and Mancini would eventually join these guys as well thereby growing the ranks of the gang. So this is the genesis of what the media will later dub La Banda della Magliana, the Magliana being the neighborhood from which many of them came. The first action to put the gang on the map was the kidnapping of the Duke Massimiliano Grazioli Lante della Rovere, at this juncture in history, kidnapping for ransom was a rather popular activity in the Italian criminal underworld. Famous cases like that of John Paul Getty III were just the tip of the iceberg. Prospective kidnappers would find out anything they could about a potential target, would capture them, hide them in a safe house while they negotiated payment with their victim's family. Some delays could take place as kidnappers and family members argue about how much money they could afford, but usually things were wrapped up quickly and the victim would be released. In some occasions things didn't go as smoothly. In the Getty case I just mentioned, for example, the grandfather of the victim, who had made billions with the oil business, refused to pay. Getty Serious, Getty Senior, I meant to say, was notoriously cheap. This, after all, was the same guy who had installed the coin payphone at his mansion so that his guests would use that rather than his own phone line. I mean, how cheap do you have to get? Seriously, when you have that kind of money, you don't want your guests to use your phone, so they have to use a coin payphone that you have installed in your house? Well, that's taking it to another level. In this case, even the kidnappers couldn't believe he was so cheap as not to pay for his grandson release. And so in those cases, things could get real ugly, and they certainly did in Getty's case. The kidnappers cut off the younger Getty's ear to show that they weren't playing around. And only after that, Getty Sr. paid part of the ransom, the maximum amount that was tax-deductible, and then loaned the rest of the money to his son at a 4% interest. Yeah, I know. But as weird as fascin- and fascinating as the Getty story is, let's get back to the Banda la Magliana and their venture in the kidnapping business. In the 1970s in Italy, anyone with serious money was a potential target. And the Duke and the Duke Grazioli Elante della Rovere certainly fit the bill. 
He belonged to some old-time nobility and his family was loaded with money. They adorned their nobility thanks to their service to the Pope in centuries past. They owned a palace in Rome. That's not a bad start. And several agricultural businesses in the countryside. The gang received the information that the Duke's wife family had just sold one of the most important newspapers in central Italy. And on top of that, the Duke had just received a big check since the Italian state had paid him off in order to run a new freeway through one of his agricultural properties. So even more money than usual was now sitting in their bank accounts. The Duke's son had a less than trustworthy hunting partner who passed all the necessary information about the Duke's habits to members of the gang. So on November 7, 1977, a command of several people, including Abbatino and Giuseppucci, drove in two cars to block the Duke BMW on a country road and used some gun-flavor persuasion to convince him to climb in the trunk of one of their cars. After that, they brought the Duke to a safe house and negotiation with the family began but they started taking longer than the gangsters would have liked. So they had to move the Duke to a more secure location in Tuscany, where uh, they asked another small gang to keep the Duke hidden in a house in the countryside in exchange for a cut of the ransom. After weeks of negotiations, the family finally agreed to pay over a million dollars. Since the police was watching their every move, the gang had the son of the Duke going on a wild goose chase, forcing him to move for hours with new clues being delivered about the next location until they were reasonably sure the cops were not following him. After he delivered the bag with the money, he was told to return home where his father would be joining him soon. But things aren't going to be that easy. The guys in charge of keeping the Duke prisoners messed up, messed up big time. You know, one of them made the little mistake of letting the Duke see his face, and at that point, in a panic, he killed his captive. The members of the Magliana gang were furious over this, but they were not about to become the most important criminals in Rome by being overly soft-hearted, so they quickly decided to archive the murder as a, oops, that didn't quite go as planned kind of moment, and began counting their money. The decision was made that the money would be partially divided among the members for their own use and partially reinvested to put the gang in a position to dominate drug trafficking in Rome. In the space of the following few months, the gang evolved from a small group of petty criminals into a super-powerful gang. This is how they went about making that happen. Their MO was pretty simple. In perfect Don Corleone style, they would make to members of the criminal underworld the classic offer you can't refuse. Generous terms to all the drug dealers and other criminals willing to abandon independent activities and begin working for them. 
unprecedented levels of brutality against those who refused. One of the keys to their success was engaging in much more violence than most other gangs were willing to match. Antonio Mancini was one of the main guys in charge of, quote-unquote, convincing the other small gang to accept the Magliana gang's leadership. Mancini was a rather colorful character. I mean, unlike many of the others who are not famous for being fine connoisseurs of literature, Mancini read a lot, but that didn't make him any less enthusiastic about gunplay. In the gang, most of the murders were committed by the bosses because they didn't want to take chances of messing up a hit by delegating it to someone who may have not been as skilled. But even in that kind of a contest where no one hesitated about getting their hands dirty, Mancini was renowned as an enforcer. He says, and these are his words, I'm translating them into English, he said, that was my role, because I've been in jail and I was well known. Who could go to impose certain conditions? The pedis? Nah. With that baby doll face and his overly polite manners, can you imagine... He would go and say, from tomorrow on, you'll buy the drugs from me. They would have laughed and thrown their shoes at him. No, I would go, and at the very least, my reputation would make them pay attention. One funny anecdote about Mancini is that during robberies and other times when intimidation could be more useful than outright murder, Mancini would brandish, you know, he would brandish his gun and yell like a demon, Bumaye, which was not an Italian word at all. Rather, his war cry was inspired by the legendary Mohammed Ali-George Foreman heavyweight title fight that had taken place in Zaire in 1974. During the match, the pro-Ali crowd kept chanting, Ali Bumaye, Ali Bumaye, which translated as Ali kill him. Mancini liked this, so thanks to the joys of globalization, an African chant used in a boxing fight in Zaire between two African-American guys was going to be the same phrase used by an Italian gangster at work. Interesting enough. In any way, guys like Mancini and other members of the Banda della Magliana had zero problems in leaving a path of corpses behind them. And most potential competitors realized it was more beneficial to their health to work for them rather than to oppose them. Lots of murders of rival pushers allowed the gang to get rid of competition quickly and extend their influence on the drug trade, illegal gambling operations and weapon smuggling in the entire city. Most of all, it was the control over the drug trade that made them powerful. As Mancini put it, If you want to rule, you need to have drugs. If you take a low-level thief from my neighborhood of San Basilio, give him a kilo of cocaine to sell, and after 15 days, he's the boss of San Basilio. Drugs are power. That's clear enough. Um, When Nicolino Salis and Mancini had joined the gang, Salis brought something incredibly valuable to the table. 
his contact with the super-powerful criminal organization from Naples known as Nuova Camorra Organizzata, which became the main wholesale supplier of drugs, primarily cocaine and heroin, for the gang. The name, by the way, Nuova Camorra Organizzata, can be translated into New Organized Camorra, which <laughs> always struck me as kind of funny. I mean, New Organized Camorra as opposed to what? The Disorganized Camorra? I can picture a comedy skit about the Disorganized Camorra. Was the drug ship coming in today? Oh man, we missed it. I thought today was when we were supposed to murder our rivals. No, 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 that was last week. This week was all about the drug shipment. Easy to see why a disorganized Camorra wouldn't survive long, but you have to wonder about the need to put the word organized in there. By the way, in case you're getting confused with all these names, Camorra, Mafia, let's formally introduce you to the proper nomenclature for the Italian criminal underworld. The term Mafia, or Cosa Nostra, is for Sicilian organizations. Camorra is for the criminal organizations from Naples, and Andrangheta is from Calabria. Rome got no name, so there was just the Bandera la Magliana, but there's no one term used for Rome. Probably because there never was such a degree of such a large gang as to deserve a specific name. In the span of a few months, the Magliana gang was changing the picture. They were no longer a small neighborhood batteria. They weren't even just the union of two or three smaller batteria. They quickly ended up swelling their ranks to about 100 members and ruling over the Roman drug trade. Besides being skilled in making to prospective members the kind of offers you couldn't refuse, they had something else going for them. Unlike the traditional Mafia and Camorra, the Banda della Magliana was much less hierarchical. The bosses were not simply guys making decisions and letting others do the dirty work. They very much believed in the notion of leading from the front and being directly involved in the actions. The gang allowed a high degree of independence to its members, you know, as long as you didn't do stuff that damaged other members, your cell could run its own separate operations. And also attractive was the fact that gang members made a deal to take care of each other's family when some of them would end up in jail. A share of the profits was always set aside for those families. And with this formula mixing high levels of brutality to crush all opposition and very generous terms for members, La Banda began its conquest of Rome. Rome was a different beast. Taking over Rome was different from taking over the criminal operations in any other Italian city. Rome was more than just another lucrative market for drugs, gambling, and assorted activities. Rome was the capital of Italy. Rome was the center for the Italian government. Rome was the center for the Catholic Church. And both the state and the church, some of the time, needed the services of those who dwelled outside the law. So this meant that La Banda della Magliana wasn't simply a powerful street gang anymore. 
but they were on their way to becoming the liaison to the criminal underworld for both the church and the state. If you think this sounds slanderous or conspiratorial, just hang tight because before the series is over we'll go through enough examples to make a clear case that both church and state were on a first-name basis with crime bosses. The first instance of this collusion between the gang and these higher powers took place in relation to one of the most dramatic moments of Italy's history in the 1970s. Now, get ready to go down a serious rabbit hole. If, if I were to really dive deep into this story, this could be a four-episode series all of its own. That's because this story is intertwined to Italian politics for the previous 30 years. It has to do with the balance of power with the major political parties, the Cold War in Italy and the Red Brigades. Italy's most famous terrorist organization. But I'm not going to do that, because it would take us to a galaxy far, far away, and we would lose track of the subject of this series, which is the Banda della Magliana. On the other hand, since we are at a point in our story when the gang will be involved with this larger context, then I have to spend at least a little time to lay down the basics. Admittedly, the role that the gang will play into this story is not a big one. But I can't just skip it because A, it's such a key event in Italian history, and B, it demonstrates how important the gang had become in a relatively little time. If my audience were primarily Italian, I could just assume previous knowledge of the subject and jump into how the Magliana gang fit into the story. But since I doubt that more than a few of my listeners are familiar with this, let's get ready to dive deep into this rabbit hole. So if for 10 or 20 minutes from now you're wondering why I haven't mentioned the gang anymore and I seem to be talking about unrelated subjects, just stick with me. There's a method to my madness. I'm trying to give you a crash course on Italian politics of the 1970s and I'll take as little as possible but I don't promise it will be little. So let me try to explain a monstrously complicated chapter in history in as few words as I can. Aldo Moro at this time was without a doubt one of the most important Italian politicians of the previous couple of decades. He was president of the biggest political party in Italy, the Democrazia Cristiana, or Christian Democracy centrist party that had ruled Italy since the end of World War II. Moro had also been Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Public Education, Minister of Justice, and on more than one occasion Prime Minister. In a country in which the President is more of a figurehead than the guy truly in charge, Prime Minister was pretty much the highest office a politician could aspire to. In the latter part of the 1970s, Moro had been the architect of a strategy known as Compromesso Storico, or Historic Compromise, the attempt at building a political truce between Christian democracy on one side and the socialist and communist parties in Italy on the other. The latter two parties were also among the largest in the nation. 
the Christian Democracy Party was the main one in Italy, with over 30% of the vote. But the Communist Party was right behind them, also with almost one-third of the vote. So part of Moro's rationale for this was a desire to integrate communists and socialists into the system, rather than having them forever as as opposition forces trying to overthrow the system. This move was one of the rare things that managed to bring together the United States and the Soviet Union, since both of them were incredibly mad about it. The US stance was that any compromise with communists had to be avoided at all costs. Otherwise, it would make it look like they were losing the Cold War in Western Europe. The Soviet Union was equally afraid that this compromise would bring the Italian Communist Party further away from Russian control and closer to the Americans. And so with this move, Moro managed to anger both superpowers. Okay, since our story, we'll see Moro having a rather dramatic encounter with a group known as the Red Brigades. Let's do the introductions. The Red Brigades made their mark on Italian history. They were revolutionaries according to their sympathizers. And the main left-wing terrorist organization in the country according to those less sympathetic to them. The reason why the label terrorist is a little tricky when it comes to the Red Brigades is that while they definitely use violence to achieve political objectives, they didn't fit the mold of the typical image that comes to mind when we say the word terrorist. These were not people placing bombs, killing a bunch of random civilians to create a climate of terror. Their targets were not passerbys, but carefully chosen targets, usually judges, cops, and in particular politicians. Their enemies were both the state as well as right-wing terrorist organizations. The Red Brigades were formed in 1970, partially in response to a dramatic increase in political conflict within Italy. The 1960s had rocked the traditional political scene. The popularity of leftist student movements and massive strike at the end of the 60s had scared more conservative elements in Italian society. The response to this challenge to the status quo was not long in coming. On December 12, 1969, a bomb went off in Piazza Fontana, smacking the center of my own hometown of Milan, destroying much of the National Agrarian Bank and killing 17 people. The police promptly went after anarchists and other leftist groups, casting them as the authors of the bombing. The truth was probably a lot uglier. Even though to this day there is no unanimous agreement about who did it and why, the theory that in my opinion seems most supported by evidence is that the bombing was the work of neo-fascist groups possibly in cahoots with some rogue elements of the Italian secret services. Why did they do it, you may ask? The English magazine The Observer coined the phrase Strategia della Tensione or Strategy of Tension to explain what had happened. The strategy of tension, of which the Piazza Fontana bombing was the first example in the 1970s, you know, the stuff that would continue in the 70s and 80s, was designed to create fear among people. 
fear that could be exploited to create an opening for the creation of a more authoritarian right-wing government that would squash the advance of the left-wing movements of labor unions and of the sexual revolution and all those changes that have been gaining ground since the late 1960s. The goal was to cast the blame on left-wing groups and justify a crackdown against them. There's plenty of evidence to indicate that neo-fascist organizations like Ordine Nuovo, with the support of neo-fascist elements among police, military intelligence agencies and secret services, were the architects of this strategy. In 1970s, neo-fascist groups had even planned a coup to directly take over Italy. Now, the coup miserably failed, but the attempt to steer government in a more authoritarian direction by carrying out false flag attacks would continue until the early 1980s. So part of the reason why the Red Brigades came into being was an extreme left-wing armed response to extreme right-wing violence. Even though technically they were communists, most of them also came from a heavily Catholic background. A weird mix, but less rare than one would think, considering that, you know, at least in theory, communism is not supposed to mix well with organized religion. And yet it did happen a lot. Ideologically, the Red Brigades trace their inspiration to left-wing partisans fighting against fascism and Nazism during World War II. For example, the father of Alberto Franceschini, one of the Red Brigade leaders, had been sent to Auschwitz for his anti-fascist activities. Many partisans had hoped that after the fall of fascism, Italy would move in a more left-wing direction, and they were sorely disappointed by the more centrist direction Italy had taken. In any case, the Red Brigades were founded in northern Italy in 1970, and their story is wild and intense and pretty much deserve a podcast series on its own. But now let's just say that by 1978 the Red Brigades were a big part of the underground political scene in Italy. On March 16, 1978, a commando of Red Brigades set up the trap for Aldo Moro, the politician I mentioned just a little while ago. You got to remember, most Italian streets are really narrow. So the plan by the Red Brigades was to park two cars on the side of the road, and when Moro's car would come up, they would drive in the middle of the street, blocking his way. At that moment, another car would block the path behind him, so that Moro's car would be blocked. And that's exactly what they did. A big unanswered question that has fueled never-ending conspiracy theories is how the Red Brigades knew where to find Moro, considering that he changed route every morning. In any case, in the car with Moro was his driver and a member of his security detail. And driving right behind them in separate car were three more agents in charge of protecting him. After blocking Moro's car, a few members of the Red Brigades jump out of the cars and bushes and open fire. In a matter of seconds, all of the men in Moro's security detail were killed, and Moro was kidnapped. Think for a second how much of a big deal this must have felt like. You know, the president 
of Italy's leading party and multiple times prime minister kidnapped. It's almost the equivalent if, you know, you were to wake up tomorrow and you hear that the President of the United States has been kidnapped. It's that dramatic. Okay, so how did Banda della Magliana fit into this? Well, the influence of the gang was recognized by the state, and since nothing happened in Rome without their knowledge, some state officials reached out asking for the gang's help in finding Moro. The same request was also sent to all the other major criminal organizations throughout the country, from the various branches of the mafia, the Camorra, everybody. They were told by Christian democracy politicians that they would get help with some of their legal problems if they could find Moro. At this time, the government was led by Giulio Andreotti. Remember the name, because this guy is going to show up a few times in our story. And in pretty much every shady event in Italian history between the 1960s and 2000. Andreotti was from the same party as Moro, but they were also rivals. So when he announced that, when Andreotti announced that the government would categorically refuse to negotiate with the Red Brigades for Moro's release, the obvious question was whether this was done to avoid legitimizing what the government considered a terrorist organization, or because Andreotti wasn't interested in helping to free one of his main enemies. Moro would remain prisoner of the Red Brigades for 55 days. Some politicians were clearly frantic in their efforts to figure out a way to free him. Others, including Andreotti, were a lot less enthusiastic. Moro clearly didn't appreciate the latter's lack of efforts to save him. So as time went by, he began writing a series of letters, several of which were very critical of Andreotti, and revealing to his kidnappers much information about the inner workings of the state, who the real power players were, and what they were up to, secret operations such as Operation Gladio, which I won't talk about because otherwise it's another half-hour rabbit hole, but in any case, Google it if you're interested, Operation Gladio, and several other sensitive pieces of information. Now, this move by Moro didn't fly incredibly well with the crisis committee in charge of handling this situation for the state. Among the people in the crisis committee was a certain Steve Pieksenik, an American negotiator from the U.S. State Department and expert in terrorism. Some 30 years after the events, he told that the committee decided to take some radical steps for fear that Morrow would reveal compromising information, either to try to negotiate being released or simply out to spite for the politicians who had washed their hands of him. So the crisis committee asked a certain Antonio Chicchiarelli, a Roman forger who would often work with the Bandal of Magliana, to create a full statement announcing Moro's death and making it look like it had been written by the Red Brigades. According to Pietznik, the forged document was designed to prepare Italians for the chance of Moro really getting killed, and of sending a message to the Red Brigades that the government considered Moro as good as dead already, and so they wouldn't negotiate for him. 
The working theory here is that the forged message was part of a strategy by the current head of government, Giulio Andreotti, to sabotage efforts to free Moro and push the Red Brigades in a corner so they would have little options other than killing Moro. Now let's try that again, because in all these unfamiliar names it's easy to lose track of what we're actually talking about here. If this theory is true, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it is, then the head of the Italian government made sure that the president of the biggest party in Italy, his own party by the way, would not be rescued and likely be killed by his kidnappers. So far, during this journey down this giant rabbit hole, we've barely mentioned the Banda della Magliana. Just the fact that one of their associates was the one who forged the document mentioned a minute ago. But the other way in which the gang played in this story is directly related to this theory that the government made sure Moro wouldn't be rescued. Remember how we said that some state officials had reached out to the gang asking for their help in finding Moro? According to several witnesses, including Magliana gang member Antonio Mancini, the gang pulled off the miracle and actually discovered the Red Brigade hideout, possibly the one used to keep Moro. They passed this information to Raffaele Cutolo, leader of the Nuova Camorra Organizzata, so that he could pass it in turn to the Italian Secret Service. But the reply they received was chilling. They were told to forget whatever they knew about Moro. The obvious implication is that the order had come from key politicians, probably Andreotti, but likely others as well, since they were no longer interested in trying to save Moro. And on cue, after 55 days of imprisonment, Moro was killed and his body left in the trunk of a car in the streets of Rome. Now, this much we know for sure, and it seems heavy enough but if you happen to have a particularly soft spot for conspiracy theories, there are quite a few about this, since later history will show that killing him was a monumental strategic mistake on the part of the Red Brigades. Theories abound that the Red Brigades have been infiltrated by Secret Service agents who actively work for Moro's death. In an alternate conspiracy, we have the CIA infiltrating the Red Brigades and happily killing Moro because of his compromises with the Italian Communist Party. Moro's widow, for example, declared that Henry Kissinger, the US Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under both Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, had threatened her husband about his plan to mediate with communists. In her recollection, Kissinger had told Moro, either you stop doing this thing or you will pay dearly for it. And speaking of conspiracy, what are we to make of the fact that at the exact same time as the kidnapping, and for the following minutes, a giant blackout knocked out every phone line on the street where Moro was kidnapped, thereby making it impossible for citizens who had witnessed the event to alert the police quickly enough. If this wasn't a coincidence, and it really stretches, you know, it really stretches the limits of credulity to assume that it was a coincidence, 
then what powers were helping the Red Brigades achieve their goal? So you, now maybe you begin to understand why this event is as messy as the Kennedy assassination in American history. You know, the official story doesn't seem to add up. Conspiracy, you know, lots of conspiracy theory abound. And yet solid answers are few and far between. So while some of these hypotheses are fun to entertain, the fact is we don't have enough hard evidence for them. So this is where our journey down this particular rabbit hole ends. The only thing we know for sure is that Maliana gang members were told to stop searching for Moro even when they found him, that the state was no longer interested in that information and the Red Brigades made the horrible decision, horrible both morally and strategically, to kill Moro. Is your head exploding yet? I swear, I'm trying to simplify these stories because following them in depth can give you a real headache. If you have a few more minutes left in you, I'll wrap up part one of this two-part series on the Maliana gang by telling you a tale that, for once, doesn't involve crazy conspiracies or state secrets. This last tale I want to tell you in this episode is in line with the more conventional criminal activities that the Maliana gang specialized in. And it's also an important one that marks another key step in the gang's rise in the criminal underworld. Nicolino Salis, one of the guys who had first conceived the idea of creating a super gang to take over Rome, had recently joined forces with the other Magliana gang members. Both Salis and Giuseppucci, the current leading figure in the gang, were interested in making sure that a certain Franco Nicolini would stop breathing. Nicolini was the boss of the illegal gambling business centered around the racetracks. He was nicknamed Franchino Air Criminale, or Frankie, literally translated Frank the Criminal, which as far as cool outlaw nicknames go... I wouldn't say it's the absolute worst I've ever heard, but it's probably close to the bottom of the barrel. I sort of imagine on the day when they were picking nicknames for everybody, by the time they got to him, they'd already run out of creative juices. So I can picture a group of hardened criminals sitting around the bar and after much alcohol and drugs and pool games, coming up with some wild, hilarious nicknames. But by the time they get to Franco Nicolini, the night is late, everyone's tired, and all the best ideas are gone already. And then the local boss say, Nicolini, we'll call him Frankie the Criminal. I imagine one of the other guys, imbibed with liquid courage, daring to criticize the boss, saying, oh, come on, it doesn't even make sense, we're all criminals here. The criminal? Frankly, the criminal? Is that the best we can do? Oh, here we go, says the boss. Everyone quiet, because we have a creative type here, a true connoisseur of brilliant nicknames. A guy who thinks my ideas lack creativity. Um, No, boss, I didn't mean that. I just thought we could come up with something more original, perhaps. Oh, goes the boss, now I'm not original, is that it? Maybe you think you could do better than me? Maybe you think you should be the new boss? 
no boss, replies the other guy, realizing he's digging his own grave. I meant no disrespect. Frankie the Criminal is a great nickname, and I'm sure Frankie will be honored to have it. My bad for not realizing it right away. Please forgive me, boss. And the boss, of course, smiles and hugs him, saying, Of course, there's nothing to forgive. And of course, while he's hugging him, he signals a couple of the other guys to shoot the nickname critic in the face before the night is over and dump his body in the Tiber River. And so Frankie the criminal it is. Now, I can't exactly swear that this is the true story for how Franco Nicolini ended up with the nickname Frankie the criminal, but I like it, so that's how I picture it in my head. In any case, Giuseppucci wanted Nicolini gone because he stood in the way of the gang taking over his lucrative business. For Salis instead, it wasn't just a case of it's not personal, it's strictly business. For Salis, it was extremely personal. Back in 1974, Salis was doing his time in jail when a riot broke out. Nicolini was also in jail, and during this riot, he took the side of the guards and slapped Salis in the face. Salis never forgot this. So now, four years later, on July 28, 1978, seven people approached Nicolini in the parking lot of the racetrack and put enough lead in him as to make sure he would stop breathing. With Nicolini's untimely departure, the Magliana gang took over the gambling business at the racetracks and basically took over the entire illegal gambling business in Rome. Gone were the days when the members of the Magliana gang were petty criminals. They were now true bosses and from this moment on, for several years to come, they would live as the rulers of a powerful criminal empire. But the rest of the story is coming up in part two of this series. promised you guys I would deliver a creative ad for Datsusara, so if you're in the mood to listen to my madness, here we go. It goes something like this. If you find yourself strapped to a chair, with an icy torturer applying electrodes to your genitals and about to turn the voltage on, there's a good chance that in that precise moment he may notice your Datsusara backpack you are carrying when you are captured 
and mesmerized by the amazing design and tactile joy brought to him by running his fingers over the fabric, he may forget all about his torturing intentions. He may suddenly be struck by the senseless horror he has unleashed over the years, and realize that all he wanted all along was to make the world a better place. But somewhere along the way, things have gone horribly, horribly wrong. In that moment, with tears in his eyes, he would remove the electrodes from you, untie you and beg for your forgiveness before helping you escape. None of this would have happened had you been captured with some terrible backpack you bought from a department store. Isis converting magic is not part of the manufacturer description of most backpacks, but rest assured it's part of the deal when you acquire a Datsusara backpack. Yes, there is the odd chance that I may have had a couple of drinks too many when I wrote this down, but hey, I had fun. And somebody, by the way, they did an animation of this ad that I did for them. So if you want to look it up on YouTube, or maybe I'll I'll put a link in the episode notes, there's an actually animated version of this whole thing. It's pretty funny. I enjoyed it. Having said that, let's give thanks to a few other folks. Uh, This month we have three people who have been donating on Patreon at a $50 level and their prize, well, one of their prizes is to have me horribly mispronounce their name with my Italian accent. So thank you very much to Mark Blanchett, Justin Maples and Ross Enriquez for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at a $50 level. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, big thank you to blueapron.com. Just before sitting down to record this episode, I had a Blue Apron meal. This seems to be happening rather often. That's because we are ordering Blue Apron meals like there's no tomorrow. And we're just loving it. Uh, I've been horrendously lazy, so I've not been the one cooking as of late. That task has fallen to Savannah M, and she became really she kind of learned how to cook with blue apron she she became really good as a result of playing with the recipes and now she does her own thing and she's quite a master in the kitchen so thank you blue apron for that you may wanna you know here's the good news for you guys there's a special offer that used to be you know it's something that the blue apron used to do for history on fire listeners and they just brought it back for a limited time so if you go check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Now you can't beat free. You get to eat these free meals just on Blue Apron just because they believe that if you try them you're going to want to order more. So check them out. That's a good way to test this offer since it's free. Can't beat that. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I also mentioned in the beginning that this episode is brought to you by Cannaway. Cannaway is a CBD company that I really like CBD for a whole variety of reasons. It's very good for inflammation in the body, to reduce chronic pain, uh, help people deal with anxiety and a whole lot of other things. So if you guys want to give CBD a try, this company is the perfect fit. So check them out at cannaway.com forward slash 2496006 again that's k-a-n-n-a-w-a-y dot com forward slash 2496006 
Big thank you of course to Onnich, that's always been in my corner all along from the very beginning of the podcast. Whole variety of amazing products, uh, supplements, workout gear, clothing, special foods, you name it. Go to www.onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount. And of course, by the way, all these websites I'm listing, they are all in the episode notes, so you can find all of the appropriate links right there. And also a couple of big shout-outs. One to nevertapgear.com for sponsoring Savannah's MMA career. They make knee braces, which I've been using because I've had a few problems with my knee rolling in jiu-jitsu, and this helps keep the knee stable, so very good thing, not just for jiu-jitsu, for really any athletic endeavors, that's uh, not a bad idea. So check them out and never tap gear. And also a thank you to dynastyforge.com. They send me some amazing swords. That's a really soft spot of mine. I just, for whatever reason, I'm incredibly passionate about swords and apparently I'm not the only one, you know, and I was sitting with Dan Carlin and found out he's also quite obsessed with that. So there you go. If you share the passion, check out dynastyforge.com. And with that, I just want to thank you very much for sticking with me through this episode. A new one that will wrap up this series is coming up at the end of May, maybe the very beginning of June, but pretty soon in any case. So with that... I want to wish you a wonderful day.